You're tuned to the Risky Business Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hutting. And I'm your co-host, Michelle Raymond. You can celebrate another day of living. It's a good news business talk show talking about the exponential world, hosting fabulous guests from all sorts of industries and business, talking about trends, shifts, changes, and how you can not only survive but thrive in this exponential world and just celebrate another day of living and of love. Tune in for some inspiration, some exponential leadership, and some interesting thought-provoking conversations. Indeed, let's celebrate another day of love. You're tuned to Risky Business. With me, of course, my favorite co-host. <laughs> my favorite. You're my favorite host, Brian. <laughs> Michelle. Michelle Raymond. Hi. Bonsoir, Michelle. Bonjourno. No, 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 no. Don't cross. No, no. no, no we did no. this the other night. It wasn't bonsoir. What was it? it Buenosera. Uh, no, Buenosera is, is Italian. Yes. yes. That's for good evening. Are we doing Spanish tonight? No, we're not. Oh. We're doing... French, because Michelle is a French name, not so. Oui, but it's a male name. <laughs> it's it's a not. No, 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 no. My name is Michelle as well, but Michelle with two, L, two L's, which means two wings in French. Oh, I like that. So you that. can fly. I'll take that. Uh, Thank you uh, for my that. My name's Michelle with one L. You see, I've only got one wing. <laughs> so the wingman who just came in there is none other than our, our incredibly esteemed guest, Michael Lichmann, who is speaking to us from Switzerland. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, but it's a pleasure to be here with you. Fantastic. Thanks. It's absolutely fantastic. And I'm actually not going to tell anything about Michael. I'm going to let Michael tell us. Tell the story. That's a Tell great us idea. who <laughs> is Michael Lichmann and your story. Wherever you want how, to begin. <laughs> how, do, how do you know I'm not going to be lying to you and inventing all sorts of because things? Because you're well, an honest man. Everything starts with a dream and an imagination. And so did my life. We won't go into all the details, but I was born in Namibia, which was then Southwest Africa. And I went to school with my esteemed host. Indeed. We school together. <laughs> we mm-hmm. At Centaurus High School in Vintook in 1970. Ooh, let's not give away. Let's not give away <laughs> dates. Yeah. <laughs> It was something like half a century ago. It's something like that. Yeah. <laughs> we were schoolmates and you were definitely an inspiration, but my life led me on and I ended up through all sorts of circumstances in the UK at the age of 20 with not very much to get on with. I didn't want to return. After my schooling years, went to university in Cape Town and one thing led to another and I ended up in London, not wanting to really come back for a while. What did you study and before you before you carry on? What did you study at UCT? I was doing the sciences. You know, when I was my dad was a surgeon and cardiologist, and they saw my hands and they said, "This guy's going to be a surgeon." So mm-hmm. I was kind of channeled by the family into having to go medicine route. But these hands aren't surgeons' hands; they're musicians' hands. And so there was a, a constant arm wrestle between what my parents wanted for me and what I wanted for myself. I ended up going in my own way, as one does. And the more things were prohibited for me to do the more I would do um, them pursue I would do them yeah Mm. but if you have a child and they want to be a musician don't tell them not to be (laughs) encourage them and they might end up not being (laughs) (laughs) exactly sounds just like me my studies were kind of interrupted by the situation in South Africa at the time and I ended up wanting to try my luck overseas and I started off in the UK but when my tourist visa ran out I couldn't really go home I ended up starting my musical career in the underground I was playing in Camden Town right and there was a girl who'd been sent by her parents to a sort of finishing school type situation to learn English staying with a family in North London and going to a school in Camden Town 
a really nice Swiss girl. And after seeing this girl walking past me every day, I had to do something about it. Good man. She ended up being the, my wife and the mother of my two beautiful girls. But that was a long story. It involved a chase across Europe. As, as soon as her parents heard, I found a boyfriend. He's South African and he's, he plays a guitar. <laughs> well, the parents made her return home immediately. Where was home? Home was in the Swiss Alps. Okay. And so I was in London and so, well, what can a man do? You know, you can't stop young love. My blue rucksack, which I still have, and my guitar case and my thumb took me up into the Swiss Alps, where I knocked on their door. And the lady who is my, now my ex-mother-in-law, I couldn't speak a word of French, but she made me clearly understand me and her daughter never. <laughs> Which is the same as telling your son not to not be to a guitar music. player. <laughs> 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 and so they accommodated me nicely for about a week or so. And then the ex-father-in-law came along very shyly because he liked me. Obviously sent by his wife with a sort of five, a crisp 500 Swiss franc note, folded up and he unfolded it. And he made me understand that it was time for me to get on the road again. So I got my thumb out and my blue rucksack and my guitar case. And off I went to Holland, where I had a friend who was studying art. He's become a great artist in South Africa now. His name's Robert Slingsby. Lovely. And he, he really is a great artist. But he was sort of supposed to be studying in Holland, but he is really painting and doing a lot. And so we established a squat in The Hague and just carried on communicating with my young love. You know, she was in love with me, I was in love with her. And we found a way of using the telephone system, abusing the telephone system in Holland with the wire. <laughs> I'll tell you about that some other time. <laughs> and so we ended up actually arranging a little meet in, at the station a town in, in, the, in Switzerland, in the Alps, in the valley, French-speaking part. And we left. We went off to London, where we finally got married. And Did you invite um, the parents? Yeah, we invited them to the wedding. Yeah, sure. Okay. It was a modest affair, very modest affair. First of all, I had to get permanent residence before I could you know, settle anywhere, really. And my tourist visa had expired, and I had this deportation order in my head. It was Margaret Thatcher at the time. She didn't want the likes of me in the UK. So there we can get to talk about following up opportunities and coincidences, because tried following up the normal channels to try and get myself settled in the UK, but nothing worked. And then, so I was getting all kinds of jobs, any kind of job I could do. And the one opportunity I had was as a roadie. There was a band playing, or a band I like, and it's a place called Music Machine in Camden Town again. And after the gig, I went down and I spoke to the road crew and I said, you know, do you need somebody to give you a hand? And they said, yeah, you can come along. They were going to be touring Wales. So I became a roadie and we got in a truck and we went and set up the gear for, you know, in the afternoon. They did a gig in the evening and after the gig, we folded up, got in the truck and drove the next gig. And that lasted about two weeks. And finally, we got back to Guildford where they were based to uh, end of tour. And the tour manager said to me, uh, you had a great time. You've met all the important stars, but sorry, we can't pay you. So I thought, oops, anything I could do was I'd get my thumb out and hitch back into London. And it was a, between Guildford and London, you got the A3 motorway. And um, so I was on the A3 and somebody dropped me off at the Isha turnoff. And that's where you have the Royal Horticultural Society Gardens, Wisley. And there was a Bentley parked on the side of the road with a couple of flower pots in the, on the back seat and a gentleman with bushy eyebrows. And he had a puncture. Now, we talk about opportunity. I'm from Namibia, Southwest Africa. When we see a puncture, that is an opportunity to help somebody. Yes. To show them, you know, kindness. And 
I immediately sprang to the occasion, helped him fix his puncture, and he took me into London. And he told me he was the Honourable Sir Guy Strutt, personal friend of the Home Secretary, William Whitelaw at the time, who he proclaimed as an amiable old bee. And he looked at me as a South African, because Southwest African, or maybe, you know, we were South Africans at the time, as one of the one of their colonies or their ex-colonies. And I really pleaded with him to please check out my case at the Home Office and and get me permanent residence. And he lived in Eaton Square, and I'd drop into his house quite occasionally. He was a quite a rebel peer, a really nice guy. And one day I went to collect my mail. I was staying in squats and things, and I went to get my mail post restant at Houston Post Office, and it's a sign for something. And I said, well, either this is my deportation order or whatever. There was my passport, stamped, leave to remain in the United Kingdom for an indefinite period, no restrictions. Wow. So that's how one... Thing leads to another you know we we know that one door closes to you it's leading you to another open door so the fact that i hadn't been paid for my work led me to hitchhiking led me to meeting this gentleman who actually paved the way for my whole future sure that's amazing isn't that just a wonderful story and we, that, it's just the beginning of so much we're going to chat about today you tuned to risky business and that's a great example of of risk and just embracing it and going out and taking leaps of faith and making things happen and let things happen to you in the right and most positive way. I'm your host Brian Hutting, the program Risky Business, my co-host Michelle Raymond and our guest Michael Lichman all the way from Switzerland and we sharing life stories and just speaking about how incredible and wonderful life is and how if you approach it in the right way with the right heart, the right mindset the right intentionality, great things can happen. Tonight, what we're doing is we're featuring the one and only James Marshall Hendricks, Jimi Hendrix, uh, just a one of a kind, most remarkable, incredible musician and guitarist. And uh, so you're in for a real treat. And up first, we've got his quintessential track written by Bob Dylan, All Along the Watchtower. Must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Businessman, there, drink my wine. Come and dig my earth. None will level.
That was the wonderful sound of uh, Jimi Hendrix with the Jimi Hendrix Experience, which, of course, comprised of Mitch Mitchell on drums and Noel Redding on bass and a track called All Along the Watchtower. Off their album, Electric Ladyland. You tuned to Risky Business. I'm your host, Brian Hutting, Michelle Raymond, my co-host. Our special guest, Michael Lichman, calling in from Switzerland. So you got your fantastic. I mean, what a lovely story. The, the, the universe conspired to, to give you a break, and you got your indefinite approval for being and staying and doing whatever in the UK. And what happened next? But before we go to what happened next, when did you first – Pick up the instrument and, and, and play the guitar, Mike? That was 50 years ago. I was 15. Okay. And I'm trying to think of what actually inspired me to pick up the instrument. I, it was because I was small. That's why. I was this little guy. Yeah. A bit of a fish out of water because, you know, school in Ventuk, it was quite a macho affair, you know. And so if, you, if you're small and you, you've been, you get labeled as all sorts of things, then you have to learn to do a few things to, you know, climb up the pecking order. I was unable to do it with brute force. So the guitar was like kind of a way of like saying, hey, da- hey guys, you know, I'm cool. <laughs> I love it. So that's probably one of the inspiring things that, that got me playing. There were also people who inspired me. In fact, what the real impulse, I was 14 years old. This is the real story. Our family used to go on holiday every year in, in December. We'd take, get the caravan hitched up and we'd drive all the way from Ventsuk to Cape Town. And we'd stay at the Sunflake Caravan Park in Musenberg, which they'd called Flusenberg or Jusenberg at the time. And all the people from Johannesburg would turn up with their caravans. They had a big Jurgens caravan. We'd have our little gypsy. And I was sort of looking at these guys from Joburg and there was a group of boys. They had anoraks and they had scramblers and they had guitars. And I was like wide-eyed. And this one dude saw me looking at him playing the guitar. And he came and said, yeah, you want to give it a try? And he taught me five chords. He taught me the House of the Rising Sun, which is, yeah, I hurt my fingers and everything and, you know, but on his guitar. And that person goes by the name of Trevor Rabin. Oh, wow. What a and thing. He was, he was there with Warren Levy and Colin Levy, and they, they, they all used to spend their holidays in Musenberg. At the time, he already had a, a trio called conglomeration. That's right. I saw them live many times in, in Johannesburg. They were a fantastic mm-hmm. session band. Really were world class. I remember asking him, can you play Mammy Blue? And he told me basically to do <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame him. What a, what a bad choice of song there, Mike. That's unlike you. <laughs> no, the first song I learned to play was Crackling Rosie by Neil Diamond. Okay, okay. Because there's a club in Musenberg called The Purple and Soda, and that was really cool. There's a band called The Idiots playing up there, The New Idiots with Reggie Edwards on bass. And I saw them playing it. Wow, I had to play the song. But that was back then. I re-met uh, Trevor in London because when I had nowhere to stay, I went to stay at a friend's house in West Hampstead, also a great musician called Selwyn Schneider. And Trevor just turned up with his dad in London and we, were, we shared the couch in the lounge. And then his dad came and negotiated a, a record contract for him. I didn't have such luck because, you know, as I said, my parents were very much against me playing music. And they also, you know, moms don't want their sons running far away overseas. So that they, 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 you know, they tried by all means for me not to perpetuate my stay in, in Europe by, you know, cutting my finances. So I had to basically just find a way myself. The opportunities that came before I had my work permit were, were quite profuse and some of them quite profound. One of them being, I got a job carrying instruments, carrying amplifiers. It was a project by a guy called Pete Brown. And uh, Pete, 
I had a girlfriend at the time who came over from South Africa called Kathy, and Pete had his eyes on Kathy, so he thought his way to Kathy was by becoming friends with me. And Pete is a very, I didn't realize how famous at the time, but he was a guy who was a lyric writer, the lyricist for Cream. Oh, wow. So if you look at all the wow. Cream titles, yeah. Bruce Brown. Jack Bruce did the music and Pete Brown wrote the lyrics. Sure. And Pete was recording an album. It was a Chapel's recording studio in Bond Street. And I was carrying amplifiers. And there I met a young guy called David Richards. And David was actually a tape-up assistant engineer, but he was more like making coffee. I think Bing Crosby was recording in the studio at the time. So David was making coffee for Bing Crosby. And I was carrying amplifiers for Pete Brown and the Blockta and his band. And David and I ended up becoming best friends over time, but through coincidences. David came from a very musical family. His father was Bobby Richards who conducted and arranged all the James Bond themes. And he was also a very good drummer. And so David, from, from working at, as a tape-up, basically, at Chapels, got his first job in Switzerland in a studio called Mountain Studios in Montreux. He was also about the same age as me, about 20. And he went over to Switzerland, and the engineer, main engineer, was six, so he had to take a session. So his first session that he took was Black and Blue by the Rolling Stones. Wow. <laughs> That's and the studio, which he, he ran and he produced in, belonged to Queen. And then he finally bought the studio. And over the years, I never realized I'd end up living in Switzerland. We reconnected later on when he was doing a project with Mango Grooves, actually, South African band. Yes. And I had this little project going called Indaba, where I was working with jazz musicians, exiled jazz musicians from South Africa. So I had Mervyn Africa and Churchill Jalobe. And myself and some musicians from, it was like a North-South thing, some musicians from Denmark and from Switzerland working on our project, which I called Indaba. We're going back to like 1989, 1990. It was well before the changes. Changes were starting to happen in South Africa. And me was this Indaba because, you know, Mervyn came from the colored community. Churchill was from Mamelodi and, and me, the sort of, the, the white boy, the pushy button boy. <laughs> I say that because one day we had the sax player called Joe Malinga in and he was so drunk. He wasn't playing on the microphone. And I said, Joe, please get on the microphone. And he just said to me, just push the buttons, white boy. And I just loved it. It was just so cool. It was just like the world, the other way around. That coincidence of me getting a job carrying amplifiers for Pete Brown ended up with this friendship with David. We reconnected pretty much during the period he was doing Made in Heaven. Like Freddie had died, he'd recorded all the vocals, and he was putting the, the album together, Made in Heaven album together, was 1991. And reconnected after having connected in, in, in the UK so many years before. And I ended up becoming his assistant at Mountain Studios. Mountain Studios was a studio that became famous through a very famous track called Smoke on the Water. Deep Purple. Where, and the whole song is, is about that, what happened, because the studio was above an auditorium at the casino in Montreux. And Frank Zappa was giving a concert while Deep Purple recording upstairs. And somebody with a flare gun in the public lit up a flare gun and the studio burnt down. And Deep Purple had to evacuate the studio and they got they had the Rolling Stones mobile. So they moved into the Hotel Nacional, the hotel next door, to record the album. And an interesting rock and roll fact is that I interviewed Roger Glover a few years ago on the radio. And I asked him if it was really true. When they were moving the equipment from the burning studio... There was a, a co concrete corridor and the snare drum was sitting there and a stick fell on the snare drum and Roger heard uh, that there was a, 
uh, uh, Ian Pace heard the sound, he's a drummer, and he said, whoa, that snare drum just sounds amazing in this empty concrete corridor. And that's where they got the drum sound of Machine Head, because Machine Head was the album they were making. Yes, yes. And um, they recorded the drums in, in the corridor, I think, at the hotel, verified that with, with Roger Baba on the radio, and apparently it's a true story. It's not just a, an urban legend. And so I ended up becoming David's assistant where we did the broadcast sound from a mobile in the basement at Montreux Jazz Festival every year and had the privilege of doing sound checks and doing the sound for all the icons, including Prince. And it's an, an endless list of artists. And unfortunately, David passed away in 2013. And so did Funky Claude, Claude Nobbs. He's called Funky Claude in Smoke on the Water. They both passed away in 2013. It was like the end of a, an amazing era in rock and roll where we moved from analog digital into this sort of more abstract era that we're in now. And the days where, you know, to access a studio was an incredible opportunity because the equipment was all so expensive and it was very, it was a big kind of a myth to get into the studio and record. Whereas it, it's evolved now into Everybody can do it on their cell phones. So the, the old dinosaur of recording studios is still, it's still something worth preserving, I think. I think, I think so too. You, you tapped on something so nostalgic because it's something I was going to ask you about. It's so easy to make music now and it's also easy to make, I'm sorry to say, bad music. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no effort to have to work your way into a recording studio and, and create these amazing pieces. So it's to preserve it, I think, is necessary. And I'm going to jump in there and just say hello to the listeners and say, you tune a risky business. We're listening to a wonderful story and a tapestry being woven by Michael Lichman from Switzerland about his life journey and life story and, and, and the world of music and the world of rock and roll and, and great events and players and people and how this incredible industry has evolved and moved. And uh, it's really fantastic and very appropriate on a risky business because we're the, the heart of business and the soul of rock and roll. We're a good news business talk show. My host, Michelle Raymond, in the studio with me. I'm Brian Hutting. With you, as always, this evening, and uh, with me in the studio, my co-host, Michelle Raymond. Up next, very appropriate, little track by James Marshall Hendricks off the album Axis Boulder's Love, Little Wing. Probably the most covered Jimmy track, I would imagine. Hey, Michelle? I, I think, think so. Been covered by so many people and very often very well done. Yeah. Very well very done well by done. many people. But uh, let's go back to the original. Jimi Hendrix with Mitch Mitchell on drums, Noel Redding on bass. The Jimi Hendrix experience. Well, she's walking through the clouds with a circus mind that's running. I'm 
Beautiful sound there of uh, Jimi Hendrix and the Jimi Hendrix experience, Little Wing. And up next, we have uh, one of his really famous songs uh, called Voodoo Child, similarly with the same band, the Jimi Hendrix experience, also off the album Electric Ladyland.
That was the second song in our double play, Voodoo Child, uh, preceded by Little Wing. As we were saying, one of the most covered of Jimmy's songs. And we were talking in the break with uh, Mike just saying about how um, G3 were one of the bands with uh, Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, and I think it was Imwe Momstein that did the version of that. I might be wrong. It might, it might have been Eric Johnson, in fact, that, that performed with them when they did Little Wing. Uh, and you were saying you've actually engaged with G3. Well, I had the privilege of, as, as, as assistant engineer, assistant producer to David Richards, um, there was a G3 concert in France and with Steve Morse. That was the usual two, Satriani and Vi, and Steve Morse. And I was assistant engineer on the desk for that concert. So that was really fantastic. I mean, Vi is an incredible showman. They are all virtuoso player so as a guitar player it was a very humbling experience i must admit <laughs> what an experience what an experience going back to the the studio we don't want to we don't want to leave that uh, unfinished mountain studios now at the casino in montreux is now a museum it's a freddie mercury foundation museum where they have a facsimile of the original desk and a lot of memorabilia from the period and the back door of the studio has become a shrine with a lot of graffiti it's like jim morrison's basically Jim Morrison's grave where people visited. It's, it's an iconic place. But the studio is now, it's a functioning studio, is closed. But then I saw this documentary where Dave Grohl, who was, who everybody knows, was the finest drummer and with the Foo Fighters. There's a very iconic studio in the US called Sound City. And he decided to buy the studio and revive the studio and get it going again. And it's a great documentary and he succeeded. And now with Mountain Studios, you know, I've, I've known the Richards family, you know, the, I never knew the person, the grandfather Bobby Richards with his James Bond soundtracks and then David producing Queen and The Stones and David Bowie and a, a lot of great acts. Passed away in 2013 and now David's daughter, Wendy, is carrying the torch. But she's a new generation. She's done a, a, a course in sound mixing and she's producing house tracks and amazing house tracks at the moment. But we've been discussing the idea of reviving the real mountain studios. We can leave the Freddie Mercury Museum where it is, but maybe recreating Mountain Studios, being one of the most legendary studios ever. We like thinking about whether we could get it to work as a functioning studio, whether bands are still going into you know big studios to record or not. That would be a, talking about risky business. Mm. I know, love the idea. Love the idea. Would you would you be working with David himself, with Dave Grohl? Not at all. We could we could try and communicate. I've never I, I have no contact with Dave Grohl. My, my the person I worked with was David Richards. Right. Yeah. Would be a similar. We're thinking of crowdfunding because Deep Purple would definitely be interested, and we, we you know, the channels are open to communicating with the various people's managements. So we would have to crowdfund it, you know, because it would, it would be quite an expensive venture remaking the original studio. The guy who designed the studio is still alive and, you know, he has all the plans and, and, and he knows all the ins and outs. At the moment, where we are with the whole legend of Mountain Studios is a bronze has been made of David Richards, which is going to be put in the museum. On the side of the lake in Montreux, there's a huge statue of Freddie Mercury, singer of songs, lover of life. And also Miles Davis, who was also an iconic right, yeah. figure at, at Montreux Jazz. So there's a statue of him. And Claude Nobbs, who was the founder of the, the whole Montreux Jazz Festival. Dirt about Montreux, if I might tell it. When I was at university, the Swiss guy who was at residence at Smaps in Cape Town, <clears throat> a guy called Frank Chabonnier. And he came back from Switzerland in his first holidays, we back in 1974, I think. And he said, wow, there's this amazing friend of my uncle's who's got to put this jazz 
festival together in Switzerland. And he came out with an album called Bitches Brew by Miles Davis. And we put this album on in his residence and we kept on playing it. And we noticed that the gardener, Norman at the UCT, the gardener was constantly working outside Frank's window, <laughs> weeding and watering. But that garden outside Frank's window was perfect. The rest of the about the rest of the university. And so we decided to befriend Norman the gardener, and Norman said, wow, he loves jazz. And that opened up a whole door for us because we became good friends with Norman, and we went. he took us into the townships, into Langa and Guguleto and the Sherwood Lounge and the clubs. And we started getting into the urban jazz at that point, you know, the, the, which is conga music and the real South African sound, which led me on to which I spoke before my Mindaba project in the early 90s. That works the whole story about the studios. It's, at the moment, it's a pipe dream, but everything starts with a dream. Mm. And uh, you, you take your chances, but you don't know where it's going to lead you. None of what I was confronted with in life, really, I, I never knew where it was going to lead me in the end. And tell me about your own performing and playing. What what have you done with that over the years? Has that just been a passion? Have you have you done anything commercial with that, or, or did you did you form a band? Did you what did you do with your music? And I'm I'm sure you I know that you still play, and we in fact going to have the privilege of playing some of your music up next. But you know what have you done in total with your talent and your wonderful uh, creativity? Thank you, Bart. Thank you for the compliments. Yes. As a guitarist, I'm, I'm a guitar player. I'm not a performer. Okay. There's a big difference. You know, some people have both. You know, look at Steve Vai. He's an amazing guitar player. I'm an incredible performer at the same time. So I have had, I went sort of over him. I've had about 10 bands. Right. About half of them being cover bands. So about half of the bands I played, I've had, have been cover bands. One of the first ones in London was a great band, actually. It was just called Willie Flashett and the Raincoats. <laughs> and... <laughs> because the main singer, John Butler, so we play all the working men's clubs and it was a great education for me because these guys were a little older than me. So they were into the 50s stuff, the Buddy Holly and, 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 and that kind of music. And it was a great experience playing working men's clubs. I think, you know, when it comes to playing and, 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 and success, there's a big paradigm shift. I remember very early on, uh, a friend of mine's cousin was married to Graham Edge, who's a drummer for Moody Blues. And we were invited to Graham's house. Right in the beginning, I was in London. I didn't have, you know, I hardly had a, a pot to pee in at the time. But we stayed in this beautiful mansion in Oxshot in Surrey, down the road from Justin Hayward's Copsom Manor house that he had with his collection of cars. Justin Hayward and, and Moody Blues, of course. Yeah, and Graham, who we were staying with, was the drummer of the Moody Blues. Okay. He, he, he passed away last year, actually, at the, him and Charlie Watts, about the same age. And... All I wanted to do was get in the studio. And at the time, Graham had a little studio upstairs in his house and we we're sitting over there. And Graham came to the room and he said, ah, we've got to go in the studio again. We're going down to, it was uh, Pete Townsend's studio in Shepparton. He had it on a houseboat on the Thames. And Graham wasn't happy. He didn't like going to the studio. He said, it's like being in prison, you know. And I couldn't understand it, but I do understand it better now that success as a creative person, success can be very counterproductive. Yeah. Because once you've attained success, you fall into a world where you want to have comfort and you want to, you know, just enjoy yourself and mm -hmm. sit around and go to the pub and bring the pub home and play badminton and, <laughs> and, you know, get drunk and do all sorts of crazy things. But if you don't need to work, you don't have to work, then it becomes a bit tricky. Indeed, um, indeed. You tuned to Risky Business, you know, Michael Lichmann from Switzerland. And speaking about the, the journey through life 
in the world of music and being on the road and being part of bands on the road and supporting bands and in the studio and out of the studio and, you know, what's good, bad and indifferent. And it's a wonderful, wonderful journey that we're traveling. So uh, let's uh, just stay with us and enjoy it. Our host, Brian Hutting, with me, Michelle Raymond, and, of course, Michael Lechman. And we're about to play two of Michael's tracks, actually. Mike, do you want to just intro them for us? Well, one of the tracks is about, it's called Hysteria, and it's about the world and how we are not doing the world a favor at the moment but in the way that we're behaving. <clears throat> and it's sung in French, so only people who understand French will be able to understand what it's about. And then the other tracks and instrumental, I call it extramental. And everybody hears it. They hear the first two notes and they say, ooh, dire straits. But listen on and you'll hear that, you know, we all live off influences. Everybody's influenced. Even James Marshall was influenced by the music we came before him. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so if people do compare some of my playing to some of the, the great icons, well, it's actually a compliment, really. Wonderful. Um, it's bit, not a plagiarism, though. So up first, I think what we should do is let's play Hysteria, and then we'll come on the back of that with the beautiful instrumental, extramental track. You tune to Risky Business. Enjoy this. Je veux que les choses changent On a tué la maman Elle tourne dans le mauvais sens Plein d'oeil de l'âge Quand l'hystérie de tous les sens
That was a beautiful double play, two very different but exceptional songs. Michael Lichman, the uh, creator and performer of those two beautiful tracks, the first one being Hysteria and the second being Extramental. You tuned to Risky Business, good news business talk show, heart of business, soul of rock and roll. We're talking about the business of music, the business of life, and the business of just allowing things to flow. You know, that if you set your dreams and you get out there and follow them, it's amazing where they can lead you. And Michael's sharing an amazing story of people and big names and unknown names and all sorts of names of people that he has interfaced with and engaged with, performed with, supported, helped, carried amplifiers for. And we're having a whole lot of fun here on the show. You're tuned to the Risky Business Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hutting. And I'm your co-host, Michelle Raymond. You can celebrate another day of living. It's a good news business talk show talking about the exponential world, hosting fabulous guests from all sorts of industries and business, talking about trends, shifts, changes, and how you can not only survive but thrive in this exponential world and just celebrate another day of living and of love. Tune in for some inspiration, some exponential leadership, and some interesting thought-provoking conversations. Another day. 